Welcome to the Reframers Podcast. Arguing with friends and fam about politics is hard. New plan. Let's reframe what it means to discuss and disagree by talking and listening to each other. We're the Reframers. Hey guys, how's it going this week? Hey, you know, it's good. Yeah, good to see everybody again. Well, you, mostly you, Erin. I see Cassie all the time, but... Yeah, yeah, I know. Must get must get tired of seeing Cassie all the time. Oh, every day, all day. <laughs> <laughs> this week, we're going to talk about a super exciting topic that I think no one has really dug super deep into. It's COVID nineteen, that of course everyone has talked about all year. But we thought it would be interesting to kind of dig in, hear each other's experiences, and also take a look at all the different types of political things that COVID touched in this last year and a half. It's a little bit different this week, but while COVID is still relevant, not that it probably ever won't be in our lifetime, that we would just take a little uh, a little break and, and discuss it. So the first thing that we wanted to do was actually think back to the first dark days of COVID where <laughs> the, <laughs> where the, uh, The first shutdown order for us happened in mid-March of 2020. And for me, it was interesting because I was actually, I had come home sick from work on that Wednesday and the COVID shutdown order went into place on Thursday. I didn't have COVID, but I had some cold symptoms and it was actually pretty sick. And my roommates quarantined me in my room and wouldn't let me come out. And they were really nice. They like brought me food and stuff. But uh, that was kind of my first start of COVID. What about you guys? What do you remember from that? Oh, man, we we were actually in Disneyland. The, <laughs> the minutes before the state uh, locked everything down. So I think we were in Disneyland from like March 10th, 11th, 12th, something like that. And then on the 13th or 14th, the state was like, shut everything down. So whatever day we were there was a Thursday. And then Friday was the last day Disneyland was open. We were at the point where we were like, oh, this is going to be kind of weird, but we're just like, we brought wipes with us. We like wiped the, all the seats in the plane down. And then by the time like stuff kept developing. So by the time we left Disneyland, we were like, wow, this was it was pretty sketchy. And if we hadn't had the trip planned for like months and months, we definitely wouldn't have, have gone. And then literally both of us were at work that Friday. And that was the last day we worked March, like ninth or something. We haven't been back to work since. Yeah. That's the crazy thing. We were nervous about going on the trip and had everything booked and thought, you know, we'll be as careful as we can. This is pre-mask. Like this is, there's just, we wiped everything down we could in the hotel and on the plane and Disneyland is just the grossest place in the world when you think about it. Kids are licking the handrails and all kinds of unspeakable things happen on those rides. So it was a very surreal place to be right before the world closed for a year. And yeah, I remember my team said, hey, can you self-quarantine for two weeks before you come back after Disneyland? Just because you were around lots of people. And I remember feeling like it was a little bit dramatic. And then it wasn't at all dramatic, Mm -hmm. come to find out. So we went home and we stayed home and we stayed there for a long, long time. 
I remember that. I remember thinking how we were all like very sure that it was going to last maybe three weeks that we were shut down, which is, it's funny to think about that now we're so used to it. And, you know, with everything opening back up, it's exciting to open back up, but it's just interesting to think back of, oh yeah, we were just going to be shut down for a little bit. And then when it got extended to the six weeks, it was like devastating. And then when it got extended beyond that, it was like, all right, I guess this is just our life now. And so, but the, the stages, I think that we went through, we're all very used to it now, but it was super extreme when it was happening. Yeah. It was, it was two weeks to slow the spread. That was like all of the messaging when everything first locked down. It was like, all right, there's going to be a big wave. We need two weeks to slow the spread. And then we can like start to open back up. And then, like you said, two weeks got pushed and pushed and pushed. And here we are, you know, date of recording is June 14th, 2021. Things are just now resembling. You can go into a store without a mask on. We went to a movie theater last night. Something that's striking me even just about this conversation is just how shut down we were in California, which people know our experience is definitely different than people in some other states where it was not a shutdown. You know, I remember that too, thinking, you know, why are these states not shut down? Cases are rising, like be careful, you know, and then all of the fighting basically between the federal government and state governors, and then governors kind of not really fighting with each other, kind of, but more like quipping at each other, just constantly of, of course, we're not going to shut down, or of course, we're not going to wear masks, or of course we are, you're stupid for not doing that, you know, and just all of the rhetoric around that. Something I was actually thinking about a lot when I was just thinking about COVID in general was, I remember being really, really frustrated with just being in shutdowns and the arguments for the shutdowns, part of them were, we're shutting down not only to stop the spread, but so we can set up infrastructure so that we'll be able to do testing and contact tracing and get respirators and ventilators, all the things that we need so that we can do, you know, certain things. It won't be everything, but so that we won't be just like locked in our houses. And that's why we're doing the shutdown. And I remember just feeling like I wasn't seeing those things happening. And that one of the reasons I felt like it wasn't happening was because there was this lack of leadership from the federal government which at that time was the Trump administration. And looking back on how much the Trump administration downplayed COVID from the beginning and just didn't present a unified front, at least from my perspective, and really let states control how they wanted to do things, which you know is federalism. I, you can make arguments if that was a good idea or not. I think it wasn't in a pandemic where we needed to be united and coordinated. But that was something that looking back, I really remember, and I don't have those feelings now, but I, I remember every day, you know, looking at tweets or looking at headlines and just being so frustrated by what I was seeing from the government. I think it's really interesting too, because a lot of times people do think of California as this very, very blue state, but there are so many large areas of California that are very agricultural and very rural. And my hometown is one of those places. And I would be on a client call with somebody out of state who would say something to me like, oh my gosh, you guys have just Gavin Newsom. He's a dreamboat. He just gets it. He takes care of you guys. He's making all these great calls. And okay. So I don't know where she lived, but she was very excited about the way our state was handling things. 
but then I would, you know, go on Instagram and I've got friends that own businesses or trying to open their salon and they can't because there are these mandates that they're like, we are following everything we're supposed to do and we can't keep our business open. We can't survive. And so like the perspective is so individual and I have people out of state telling me I'm so lucky to be in this state. And then I have people I know hurting. And so it was, is impossible to feel like you could even figure out which way was up. Yeah. I think that's, that's the key part, right? That's really the, I think the crux of it is it's all dependent on your situation because we're pretty lucky. The three of us were, our jobs were able to transition to be remote. That's something that can't be overstated enough is that we weren't impacted in the way that many people were because our jobs could be done from a laptop. If you have good internet and whatnot, and also none of us lost our jobs, right? which is huge, right? So we could right. do them from home and we didn't lose them. We, we weren't frontline workers. We weren't, none of us are emergency responders or what do they call it? Essential workers, right? That's none of us where we were able to be able to go home for, for us sitting here talking about COVID. It's, you know, obviously we went through it. We have that validity, but it's also a little bit of armchair quarterbacking because our stakes weren't as high as the salon owners and the restaurant owners and you know, all those folks that, you know, maybe shut down permanently or had to fire staff or whatever the case may be. And even that I feel like transcends like politics where it's like, it just depends on what your situation was and how do you prepare for something like this? Like there should obviously be plans from the federal government to Aaron's point of like being able to have a coordinated response. Okay. In the event of a global pandemic situation, here's plans, you know, A, a through E. I was just listening to a hardcore history episode where they were talking about the contingency plans for like invading Japan during World War II and the different estimates of, okay, if this happens, then we could do this. And here's what the results would be. There's not just like some people thinking about, oh, we should, you know, have one plan. In that scenario, there are many different scenarios and plans that were thrown around and on the table, consider all the different possibilities. And so I would have hoped that that would have been more present from the federal government from the get-go. I mean, it seems like the administration did a good job in helping develop the vaccine and making the FDA rules, you know, kind of set aside for the the vaccine development, you know, in like nine months. But in terms of the actual rollout and the testing and the, you know, coordinated response, yeah, it really wasn't there from the get-go. And that's frustrating because then you end up with situations where, you have Newsom and um, with de Blasio, or no, uh, Cuomo in New York, who are kind of taking the reins and saying, okay, we're going to enact these things. And then like you were mentioned, there's Abbott and DeSantis from Florida and Texas who are having a completely different approach and populations are comparable, but the results are different depending on where you're at. Yeah. Something about the preparation, and this has been talked about a lot, is that the federal government did have a pandemic response team that was in place under the Obama administration that was used during the Ebola outbreak and also was even expanded after that. And Trump disbanded it in May of 2018, which now looks real bad because, and you know, maybe no one knew, I don't think it wasn't super talked about other than you know, among virology experts and, and certain people who are in the know about the importance of that kind of response team. That wasn't like a huge story that that was disbanded. But then as soon as COVID hit, we didn't have a pandemic response team, which 
hindsight 2020, but also seems like maybe that should have just been kept, you know, as a government resource, kind of like you're talking about with having these contingency plans for World War II in Japan. Like, we don't know if this is going to happen, but it's one of those things that pandemics have happened before. We know they can occur. And it would have been something that, that we should have had, I think, for sure. And it's just, it like hurts that we had some kind of response team that then we, we ended up not having. Yeah, I, I almost don't fault Trump for disbanding it because at that point in time, from his platform where he was running from, he was a big talker about reducing the size of government and cutting down on expenditures. And even though that didn't happen in his administration, like it was one of the things he did do was cut regulations. But I could see in, in trying to pursue that goal, looking at the situation, you know, there's no, you know, pandemics or viruses that are sweeping the earth at that time. So it's like, ah, we probably don't need this. It's, you know, costing money. Let's just disband it. The hindsight does look foolish because obviously now we're a year and a half in and we've all suffered, you know, somewhat of the consequences of that, but maybe, you know, that should be part of FEMA or something permanently. Who knows? Yeah, maybe. And I mean, like, I I definitely do even just because there was Ebola during uh, Obama, which was right before Trump. And then there's Zika a couple years after that. So it's even if it wasn't like we're prepared for a global pandemic. I mean, no one was prepared for a global pandemic. Mm-hmm. No country was fully prepared for that. But we knew that there were even epidemics, right? Like even mm-hmm. smaller forms that were in the very recent past. And so to me, I'm like, well, yeah, we know that this is a thing. And it seems like every few years there's there's a new sort of strain of something. And it's not, it's not usually been as devastating or as widespread as COVID-19 was. Mm-hmm. But I think there was enough there to totally justify having that response team. Sure. So it's just one of those other other things that um, was frustrating to me, at least mm-hmm. about the way Trump handled things. Mm-hmm. And again, with like just downplaying things, saying in February that it was going to be fine by Easter. I mean, you can go back so many of the things that he was saying, just they were all not true, most of them. And there were certain times where he was like downplaying the virus, where we know from interviews after the fact that that came out later that he knew it was more serious than he was representing to the American public. I know that that gets a lot of attention. And I don't know what it's like to be in, in that situation as a world leader. And as a national leader, you don't want to panic people and say, my God, this is going to be devastating. Get prepared. We're not going to be able to do anything for six months, right? You don't want to cause on the other end, your point is taken, right? But I think that part of the problem is that nobody really knew what COVID was going to look like. And so, I mean, even Fauci said things in the beginning that his opinion has changed as the data has changed. And so that's something that is, again, I don't really blame Trump for saying things that pan- turned out to not be hundred percent accurate just because he's trying to deal with several things all at the same time, the federal government's response of whatever response it was, while also not creating a bigger situation than necessary with the limited information that was available at the time, because February is pre, pre-pandemic landing in the United States anyway. So I think that everybody did a bad job with COVID. I, 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 don't, I don't think that anybody really did great, the federal government, the states, like, I don't think it was great anywhere. And I think everybody's dealing with partial information. So it doesn't really seem to me like, oh, it's just the federal government that did bad here 
or just Trump said things that were not true because information is changing all the time. Sure. And that's true. Information was definitely changing. I agree with that. But, you know, we have the, the private interview that Trump did with Bob Woodward in February of 2020, where he said, we know that this is more deadly than the flu. We know that this is deadly, basically. And then, you know, decided not to share that. And even if it's not sharing that, like you said, you don't want to incite panic, whatever, but being way more upfront about how serious it was, which I don't, I don't think that Trump did. And also I don't really like the paternal nature of, well, we don't want to panic people and like that kind of argument. And, um, I think it, it applies here, but I think it also applies to this idea of, um, you know, keeping mask mandates at this point for people who are vaccinated to like create a culture of mask wearing for people who aren't vaccinated. And even though that's not exactly what the science is, that also feels really paternal to me. It's like, why don't we just trust people with the information that we have? We can present it, you know, with the caveats or, or whatever it is. And like, yes, it's going to develop over time. I think that's something we've all learned. I think we've learned about science and how it develops and how that changes policy. But I don't like this, well, we're the government, we don't really trust people. And so we're just going to tell you, you know, what makes sense to us. I completely agree. I think that was one of the things that I complained about once we had the vaccine available to us as it was starting to get rolled out, that all the leaders in the government were vaccinated by that point, right? Senators and president and everybody was, was, has been vaccinated, but they're still wearing masks, even outdoors. And it's like, okay, why are you wearing the mask still? If you have a vaccine, it's the CDC guidelines are showing that it's safe to be outside. You're, you're far apart from people anyway. You're vaccinated and you're wearing a mask. At that point, that you're not following the science anymore. And so I agree with you in that respect that keeping the mask mandates in place as a blanket is very like nanny states, very paternal. It's the government being like, we know better than you. And 50% of the country has been vaccinated. And so it's like, okay, we're, we're approaching the point where we're at herd immunity. So now it's up to you. If you want to wear a mask or not, if you have compelling reasons, if you know your secondary you know, risk factors, take those into account. But I think blanket masks you know, have to be worn at all times. Is there's, that's not the government's role at that point. Yeah, I think this is a good opportunity to talk about masking because it became such a political thing. Yeah. Like I remember seeing him, uh, it was like an overheard San Francisco thing one time. This isn't going to make San Francisco look that great, but it was someone walking down the street and they like had their mask pulled down and their friend was like, pull your mask up. I don't want people to think that we're Republicans. And it's yeah. just like, that's, that's terrible. That's terrible. <laughs> but you know, I think that that was almost the mentality. It was, yeah. if I'm like more liberal, I'm going to wear the mask and show that I believe in the science. And then it was this really intense, I am not going to let the government control me thing on the other side for not wearing the mask. And the fact that it became so political is really too bad because yeah. we did know fairly early on that masking does help with spread and that it's something that you should do in crowds or in, in indoor areas. I do think that it was a huge problem at the very beginning because there was mixed messages from the government, from, from the World Health Organization about, mm -hmm. 
what mass did, right? Because they were worried about preserving mass for healthcare workers, which makes sense. But this is, you know, kind of another thing of, okay, well, we're worried about preserving mass, but also we know that masks are effective and that message didn't get spread early on. And I think that as much as anything caused this rift in terms of people being willing to wear masks or not. That little story you told about the overheard LA or overheard San Francisco, which is like a, it's an Instagram account for if people aren't, aren't aware. It's like kind of a nice little caricature that just encapsulates the situation. It, it might be probably somebody who really said it and it's probably a, a a bit of an exaggeration elsewhere, but it does kind of give people a picture of what the what the mood was. And I just want to say, like, as being the conservative, you know, on on the show, that I don't think that the virus was a hoax. I just, in case anybody's like skeptical of my positioning on that, I also believe that virology is like a real thing, and we had like germ theory back in I don't know the 1700s this isn't new. <laughs> I don't, I'm not a denier in that respect. My beef is more along the lines of, is the government overstepping in its role to provide a solution to the problem without being negligent? Because that's really the balance of, okay, we're trying to help facilitate, we're trying to advise, we're trying to improve and make sure that we're doing our duty to protect our citizens, but without overstepping and squashing all, you know, economy and, and, freedom. So that's really the like the crux for me. Okay, so but what happens if the government's role is to keep its people safe from threats and not everyone gets vaccinated? I mean, I'm out in the world with people, they're not vaccinated. I have friends that are immunocompromised that either can't get it or they get it and they hope that they build antibodies to it. Those people that choose not to because they don't want to are allowing the virus to manipulate and have variants that could kill all of us someday. So in a way, is it not the government's role to advise masking continue, at least in certain circumstances, like we were all in a movie theater yesterday, things like that, where I I do hear you guys saying the paternal role of the government needs to be you know, sort of kept in check and that they aren't our parent. But if we are kids and some of the kids are badly behaved and don't do what they're supposed to, and it puts the rest of us at risk, who's to say that they shouldn't make sure that we're protected, at least in one way, if they're not going to take the vaccine? Specifically for this, my, my answer would be, you, you mentioned, you know, you're out in the world and there's people that aren't, that are choosing not to get it, but you're vaccinated. So you're covered. Like it doesn't matter what I'm what... covered, but like if somebody I know is immunocompromised and can't get the vaccine or might not build antibodies, like it still can sword mutate, can mutate, mutate. I mean, that's something I would be fearful of that it just is left to run rampant among the whatever percentage of people that don't get it. And then I can get that later. Should I not be fearful of that? Who's to say? I mean, maybe, but I, I would say that it's only been like literally a year and a couple months. And so there probably will be future vaccines that do develop that can be used for that. But in general, if you take the idea that the government's job is to keep everybody safe, just because this is a pandemic and it's like an invisible threat doesn't necessarily 
make it different in that argument context to me from like crime in general, right? Like, okay, we can't go out to the movie theater because you could get robbed on the way there and that's unsafe. So you should just stay inside. Like at a certain point, we are free to free individuals and that has to be preserved, which is again, kind of my beef with the whole thing is at what point is the right application of power appropriate? Well, and I think that this really, the idea of government being able to tell us what to do really came into sharp focus during COVID, particularly mm-hmm. with shutdowns. I mean, there mm-hmm. were protests about shutdowns or protests about mask wearing. And I will say like for me initially, a lot of those seemed very silly. Guess, and I think part of that is because we didn't have a good sense of how long the shutdown was going to last. So it was, okay, well, we're going to shut down for a little bit. We have to do this to stop the flow of the virus. But people should kind of get on board and hopefully won't be closed very long. But then it did become clear at a certain point that we were going to be shut down for a long time, especially in San Francisco. It's something, a place I noticed it with was restaurants Mm -hmm. because not every restaurant could afford to do takeout. And there's a lot of conversation about DoorDash and these delivery services that actually charge huge percentages for delivering and and they just couldn't they couldn't stay so many places closed and that's a place where i thought you know we really could have used a lot more government support in terms of stimulus for small businesses and i think that for me that would have made more sense than forcing a reopening when it didn't when it just really wasn't safe because there were certainly times Different times for different states, you know, Mm -hmm. we saw how the virus moved across different states, but like it wasn't safe for people to be out and about, like going to all the restaurants or, you know, getting your hair done, whatever it is. It felt like a lot of these small businesses were kind of left in the dust and that the government should have been a lot more focused on providing relief to small businesses. And so that's the way that I would have thought about it as opposed to it just being full reopening, but there wasn't a a bridge in that gap for a long time. And that was a huge problem. The problem that I see is that the government, all levels, federal, state, like I'm being very indiscriminate, is too big. Surprise, surprise that I'm saying that. But you can't, I feel like you can't make a rule if you're the government to say, okay, restaurants can't be open for indoor dining. Well, do you know about all the restaurants? All the restaurants are different. They have different size capacities. They have different situations. Maybe some restaurants don't have any indoor dining at all. But if you're saying that they can't be open at all, then it's like, well, why should they be affected as well? And so I feel like part of the problem is is that the government is a little bit hamstrung by its size and its duty to protect its citizens in a way that it tries to make rules in a crunch time, right? Where okay, it's March and suddenly the government's, you know, states and federal are having to come up with, with rules and regulations. And how, how do you make a rule that is appropriate for all the different people? And I don't know how you do that, which is well, honestly why I think maybe it shouldn't happen. And I agree with you that I think that the mandates, the shutdowns were effective to a point. I don't know, for even six months, I would say, no, let's just suck it up. Let's just do our best, try to help the situation out as best we can. The more we suck it up now, the sooner we can get back to life later for there still to be mass mandates in California. A year later is like kind of crazy to me. Yeah, that's interesting. I um, I was thinking about kind of your point about government being too big to help, I guess. 
I think that this is the perfect situation for government to be big, because if you don't have the power and the authority to be able to institute shutdowns and mass mandates and all of these sorts of things, then you can't do anything. So I do think that we needed to have a government that was powerful enough to be able to do that, because then what's your other option? Everyone just does whatever they want, and there's no regulations. When you have a crisis like this, where do we go from there? You have something about that? Point taken. Yeah, I I think that that's probably true. I would agree with that, that you don't want to have a government that's so small that it's impotent in the face of dealing with something like this. So I agree. I think maybe I could, if I could try to refine what I said earlier to make it more along the lines of maybe government's too complex to try to deal with a situation like this in terms of the application of the rules, not necessarily the response to, you know, the mandates and the distribution, but more of like, the economic rules applied to businesses. Maybe that would be if I could refine it. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And it is actually really interesting. You know, we didn't talk about the founders at the beginning of this section because it's a sort of a novel thing and the founders weren't, you know, writing the constitution with a global pandemic in mind. But something that they did build into the constitution is flexibility in the executive branch to deal mm-hmm. with crises with extreme things that might happen. And there is more flexibility in the executive branch. You know, we have lots of agencies, presidents can give executive orders, they can uh, direct agencies to do things. And so we do have mechanisms for that. I think that was interesting too. And that that also applies on a state level, for the most part, governors Mm -hmm. have more flexibility on what they can do than state legislatures. And I did want to mention something about just the the overlay of all of the rules and all these different agencies trying to make rules to apply to different situations. So um, I I work with schools and it was <laughs> it was honestly like a nightmare. And I'm sure this is true for everyone who had to deal with regulations. This is you know businesses and anyone trying to stay open, and then all the people who were advising them on on what the regulations were. They changed constantly, constantly. And they differed between counties, between the state and between the federal government. And so we were always, you know, making these charts of, well, what is the strictest rule? Cause that's what applies. It might be the state rule, but it might be the county rule. And okay, well, what has updated since last week? Because often we would get updates on like Tuesdays. And so we had to go read all of the like changes again and figure out what had been updated. I mean, like that A certain portion of that was unavoidable because of the way the science was developing, but a lot of it wasn't, you know, and a lot of that created way more confusion and also just more time for people to have to spend to do these things as opposed to just creating a safe space for students. Although, you know, most of them were virtual for a lot of the year, which that also had a huge impact. And I think that you can make the argument, I would make the argument that schools should have been opened way earlier than they were when we knew that, you know, transmission didn't happen between younger students very much and that you could open schools safely with masking and distancing and that that wasn't as much of a priority. It wasn't even as much as a priority as getting businesses open, particularly in California. And I I understand that because businesses were clamoring to be open, but in California had to deal with teachers union, different counties had to deal with that. But we know that the effects of distance learning are are very real on mm. on students, on kids, and they're they're going to be effects later on. And I think that that should have been more of a priority as well. I agree, and I think one of the things that overall with the pandemic that 
maybe gets lost. And I wouldn't even say the pandemic, but I think just in our society at large gets lost is that nobody's making decisions in a vacuum. It's not a binary of you either, you know, shut down or you don't shut down, right? There's, there's varying degrees. There's multiple things that can be done, um, multiple levers that can be pulled, you know, at the same time to try to encourage different results. And one of the things that I think the data has shown throughout the pandemic is that, okay, great. So maybe we save lives because we, we were shut down and we had the masks, but what about the increased rates of suicide and domestic abuse and depression and all these other side effects that, that we saw skyrocket as soon as the lockdowns went in place. And again, I'm not saying that the lockdown shouldn't have happened because there was scientific reasons for that at the time. But then at a certain point, you have to reassess and reevaluate to see, okay, is the cost that we're paying in, you know, in these other tertiary side effects, is that worse or worth, you know, both the lockdowns or should we look at a new strategy to do a partially open plan? Obviously, I'm glad I wasn't somebody that had to make any of these decisions because what a nightmare, but it's tough. And like we said, kind of earlier, we are armchair quarterbacking a little bit, but there's a lot you could pick apart with in terms of the response. Yeah, I was just going to say that it's very it's very easy on really this side of the pandemic for the U.S. and particularly California that is really high rates of vaccination mm-hmm. and really low rates of COVID right now. It's really easy to look back and be like, well, of course, school should have been open earlier, and of course, we should have you know focused more on businesses and all of this kind of stuff, but. In the moment, I, you know, I think it really was hard. There were some things that were obvious that people shouldn't have done. I think people in government shouldn't have done. For me, the thing that really sticks out, and this is like not even that important, but I think it's funny, is when uh, Newsom, the governor of California, went to dinner at the French Laundry in Napa, which for people who don't know, is like one of the most expensive restaurants in California, which is one of the most expensive states, right? It, it's just like this insane restaurant that like normal people can't even go to. And he went when like there were shutdowns and people were in their houses and stuff. And it was just, I mean, if there was anything that just totally ruined all of his credibility, yeah. like that was it. And it did. I mean, there's currently yeah. a recall effort against Newsom right now. I don't think it'll be successful, but it, it, it's out there. Yeah, it really, really hurt the whole platform that he was shaping of, of caution and doing our sacrifice now. So we'll be okay for the future. At that point, I don't remember exactly when that was, but not only was it, okay, things are locked down and you have to wear a mask, but you can't be in groups of X or more. I don't remember what the X was at the time. But he was he wasn't just like there by himself with a mask on. He was there like at a table of like eight people or something like that. All of them not wearing masks at this dinner when everybody else is like, I haven't seen the sun in three months. <laughs> it, it that and then and then I know the other one, like Nancy Pelosi. It was November. Her. It was it November, was November okay. and no one at the table was wearing a mask, which a lot of people don't wear a mask at dinner. But but you're the governor, cool. right? Like I know. And and. <laughs> The other one was Nancy Pelosi at the salon when nobody could get their haircut. And it's like, okay, if you guys are doing the rules, like you got to abide by them. You, you just have to like, sorry, you have to, yeah. it, you, it can't be rules, rules for thee and not for me. Like it, that's just across the board. Yeah, definitely. A couple of things I want to talk about before we end are one, I kind of want to talk about conspiracy theories and hoaxes just oh briefly. And then I want to talk about uh, it's the 5G 
COVID is because yes. of the 5G. <laughs> oh, remember that one? My Throwback gosh. to the 5G. Oh man, People that was tearing crazy. down cell towers. That's yeah, insane. good, good for them. That's I think that's smart. I, no, <laughs> imagine no. what it could have been like if they left the cell towers up. Just imagine. Oh my you god, never know. these are the people out there not getting a shot, <laughs> trying to eat lunch near me. Gross. It's true. Okay, so well, there's two things I want to mention about this. Yes. One, there were a lot of crazy conspiracy theories, and to me, a lot of them seem to come from people I don't agree with. We'll just phrase it like that. And the the hydroxychloroquine thing where oh. it, there was, you know, this drug that was purported to totally be a cure for COVID. Trump perpetuated this. People started taking it. Find out it definitely doesn't stop COVID. And it was actually dangerous for people to be taking. Like that was a huge deal. And that's something that I mentioned because I saw people in my circle posting about it on Facebook. Like, why is COVID a big deal? We have a cure, you know? And I mm -hmm. thought that was a big deal. The other one I want to mention, I have to actually be pretty humble about, and it's where the virus came from. If it came from a leak from a mm -hmm. Wuhan lab, or if it came from animal to people transfer. The reason I say I have to be humble about this is that when this first surfaced that the virus could have come from a lab, it was widely touted by liberal media as being this crazy conspiracy theory. And I think there's a couple of reasons for that. One was because of the people who initially talked about this. Tom yeah. Cotton was one of them. He's a very controversial Republican. And also that it was tied by, by some people to this idea that China purposely created it to like attack the U.S., and that didn't make sense because I'm like, well, this is a global virus there. And also they have totally injured themselves. So like, that's crazy. And I really wrote it off as being this like ridiculous thing. And recently, you know, it's June 14th. So in the last month and a half, there's been a lot of articles talking about how, you know what, we need some oversight over what's going on at these Chinese labs. It's possible. It's definitely very scientifically possible that this came from a Chinese lab. You know, mm -hmm. they don't know for sure. They won't know for sure. Partly, you know, partly because China won't let anyone go in to investigate, but I think it really shows just how you can be influenced, even if you're trying to be critical about mm -hmm. things and be objective just by the different narratives that are around. And um, that was something that I totally dismissed that, you know, a year later, it was a little bit of a wake up call for me to just be more careful. Well, and it's also just horrible because then there, there since then have been all of these awful, abhorrent attacks against members of the Asian community across the country. And while I can appreciate Erin that you're talking about wanting to be aware of your own biases and where you get your news. And I think that there's a way to handle something like that, like maybe, not calling it the Chinese flu or whatever Trump called it China, all year China long. Virus. Yeah. It's really upsetting to see. I mean, Aaron, you live in San Francisco. I'm sure you see news probably daily about the attacks on the Chinese elders just like waiting for the bus and stuff. So while I can appreciate that, I, it's really upsetting that it, it didn't seem to be from a very scientific direction. So it was looking for someone to blame. Well, I think that that's true, Cass, but I think that there was other voices that were saying, like, because Mike Pompeo was one of the guys that, I think he was Secretary of State at the time. 
he was one of the first people I think that came out and said that there is the intelligence community has information that this virus could have originated in a Chinese lab. And then obviously Trump is not um, eloquent. He is not, you know, somebody who is going to be able to deliver the subtleties and nuances of a situation <laughs> to a global audience. Um, so for him to turn around and say something that was, it seems now could at least have been based in fact that the virus did originate from the Wuhan virology lab, for him to then simplify that down, erroneously so, to just call it the China virus is not helpful in terms of your point, Cassie. But I do think that he was ripped for suggesting that it could have come from, from a lab like that. And like you said, Aaron, like we'll, we'll probably never know because the Chinese government's not going to let you know, people come in. They, I, I remember seeing reports early on where there was a, a doctor, a Chinese doctor, who was, he was warning the government, I think, of the possible dangers of COVID-19. And the Chinese government, instead of like listening to him and taking precautions, jailed him and maybe his family or something like that because they didn't, weren't open to even hearing that that, that could be a problem. So history is now, you know, time has since revealed that that could at least be a, a possibility. And then in terms of the hydroxychloroquine, um, which I feel like a sense of accomplishment in being able to say that word. When I first heard it and saw it, I was like, I don't know anything. This don't even look like English to me. And you so both I, said the word and, and it sounded like I thought maybe you'd studied. Nice job, guys. I, 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 I was sounding it out from how it was written on my page. Oh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> <Hooked> on phonics. <laughs> but I don't know as much about that one. I know it's for sure not a cure. We know it's not a cure to COVID-19. But I thought in the Fauci email leak, and I've refrained from using any really of that because that got politicized real quick. And most of the emails from that leak were to him rather than from him. But I, I remember there being something in, in that about, he, was, he mentioned hydroxychloroquine as being potentially useful in treating the symptoms of COVID. But I know that that was something that Trump went really hard on and a better approach probably would have been for him to take a step back from the whole situation, slipped a little piece of paper to Pence across the table and been like, can you bring this up as an area that the United States government should like investigate or research into and then have Fauci comment on it? I don't love Fauci, but at the time, that's the guy running the science behind everything. So if you think that this is a viable solution, you know that most of the country kind of doesn't like you. Maybe don't say it and like give it to your number two to like investigate in that respect. Yeah. I mean, I feel yeah. like it didn't, it probably wouldn't even need to be that complicated. All Trump needed to do is say, we're investigating to see if this drug is helpful against COVID. I mean, that's and literally I, all he needed to say because that's the truth. Yeah. Well, that's not what he said though, right? right. It was, this is a thing that is going to save us from COVID. And I think that that's like another thing related to what Cassie was talking about with characterizing it as mm -hmm. the Chinese virus. And, you know, I think that you were kind of magnanimous to him just saying, oh, he's not that eloquent. You know, like, I don't think that it was a mistake that he characterized it the way that he did to take blame off of himself and the administration and say, China's done this to us and demonize China. And in doing so, 
I think he certainly contributed to the rise in violence against Asian Americans. And, you know, this is something you can, we can talk about later with Trump in general, but his rhetoric about certain people groups and um, situations, I think contributed to, to violence and other kinds of things. And so when you're talking about specifically Asian American violence, yeah, I think he carries a lot of the blame for that because of the way that he publicize and politicize the virus. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I could see that. Obviously I know he's, he's aggressive in his rhetoric. He's not somebody who's going to like massage a message to deliver it. Well, like he's just going to say whatever pops into his head. So he's, he's going to say whatever he wants to say. And most of it is going to cater to his base. So I don't think he helped. I don't know that maybe I'm too thinking about it too much from my own perspective. Cause to me, it seems like if he is calling it the China virus, that doesn't give me reason to be like, oh, I'm now I'm going to look for inciting violence against Asian Americans. I don't make that connection. And, and maybe this is something you guys can help explain to me or help educate me on. But it's like, maybe I understood what he was saying. I, I don't know. If he thought at the time the virus originated in a potentially originated in a lab from China and whether or not it was re- released intentionally, I don't think it was. Like, I think it probably could have been a, a mistake. I, I agree with you, Aaron, that that doesn't make sense that it would have been released intentionally. I, I don't get how calling it the China virus then is like inciting violence against Asian Americans. There's okay. an article I'm looking at right now, but a new study suggests that former President Donald Trump's inflammatory rhetoric around the coronavirus which is believed to originate, have been originated in China, helped spark anti-Asian Twitter content and likely perpetuated racist attitudes. Talks about tracking neutral hashtags such as COVID-19 versus racist hashtags like Chinese virus and talking about how they often see that online conversations that contain messages of hate don't stay online. Found that the timing of the former president's tweet about the Chinese virus was significant. The first time he used Chinese virus was March 16, 2020. And the following week saw an increase in anti-Asian hashtags and a rise in hate crimes. Um, And then you've got the World Health Organization constantly trying to warn him, don't attach locations or ethnicity to the disease. This is not a Wuhan virus, Chinese virus, or Asian virus. So We've been maybe for a lot of episodes, a lot on the same page and a lot of agreement, but this is where I do disagree, where I, I think that Donald Trump for being maybe ignorant or foolish in a lot of ways was downright specific and strategic and spiteful and hateful about making sure that he placed blame about what was going on somewhere very direct that wasn't his own shoulders. I don't think it's an accident. I don't think he's just not eloquent. I think he knew and and meant to say everything. And he definitely deserves blame for the way people are being viewed now. Interesting. Um, thanks for finding that article, Cass. I it's interesting to see the correlation of of the the tweet data. So that's helpful. And you know, if that's the case, and that is obviously despicable. And um, again, that's one of those things where it's like you're not just tweeting to your base, right? You're tweeting to the whole world. It's not just decisions in a vacuum. So um, something that as the leader of the world, you should be aware of and 
if you see a negative consequence, then you need to correct it. So, um, yeah, yeah. I mean that that makes sense to me. So, um, thanks for kind of walking me through that because I'm I'm sitting here being like, if the virus originated there and the Chinese government tried to lock it down and cover it up and delayed letting the world know, hey, we might have a situation on our hands, then if Trump says it's China's fault, I'm like, yeah, dude, you're right. Like that is the Chinese government's fault. But I think you're not the only one who feels that way, right? We do we do need to and desire to trust our government. And yeah, if they tell us something and it's wrong accidentally or on purpose, it severely impacts the way we go about our daily lives. Yeah, I think that was helpful. That was a helpful discussion for me to have because it seems like okay, he might have been right about like the origins of it, but in terms of how he discussed it and communicated and handled the situation, it was wrong. Like it was downright wrong and led to a worse situation rather than improving readiness. Yeah, I, it didn't, didn't make sense to me before, but it does now. Nice. Thanks, Cassie. <laughs> I think that was really helpful. I was just going to say, you know, this is why we do what we do, right? Like it is uncomfortable. We're not a group of three friends that hold hands and skip sometimes, but we we do disagree on things and it's real life. So it's good to talk about it. Yeah. And I mean, my experience is very limited. I don't see a lot of people at all now because I'm in this house all the time, but like our sphere of, of people that we interact with is very limited and is at all, not all encompassing compared to the huge diversity that exists in the country. So. And Zach, that's a really good point because we did all in the midst of all of everything that was going on and fearing for our lives and our family's lives and our livelihoods, we all went home and we watched our news that we normally watch or subscribe to and talk to the couple people in our life or our family that we normally talk to. And so we were not a diverse um, <laughs> group of people last year. Not really. We were scared. Mm -hmm. And we hunkered down and we fed our own needs and fears and probably weren't our most open-minded. And that's dangerous in and of itself. Yeah, I mean, I went from working in an office of several hundred people in the Bay Area in Fremont to a like 10 by 10 room. So yeah. the, the people and the ideas that I was exposed to was drastically reduced, so it's helpful to look at things, especially kind of dispassionately in the rearview mirror to like learn from. So it's helpful. Something I wanted to mention kind of as like an just summary and overview of all of these things that COVID has brought up. And a lot of which we talked about today, we didn't even get to stimulus, which I think is a whole other part of it. That's yeah. really interesting, but I'm yeah. sure we'll talk about government spending at some point, just all of the things that this year with COVID brought up and I think taught us and what we can think about. So first, government response to emergencies. We all got to see that up close and personal, see what that's like. Partisanship, kind of like you were talking about sitting in our homes, only being in our echo chambers. And that also, I think, really came up with the stimulus bill, with the masking, with all of the mandates. Federalism, this is great federal government versus local and state governments. That was big at play. Medical care, 
people losing health insurance because it's tied to their jobs or how the medical field responded. Privacy and autonomy with vaccines, even with things like public health surveys or work surveys about where, you know, how you're feeling, all of that is private uh, medical information. Government and its interaction with businesses, which has to do with shutdowns. And then also international relations, you know, how we are talking to the other countries, uh, travel bans against other countries, countries that have travel bans against us. I mean, all of these things, so many topics, like basically if you're going to do a deep study of government and how it works and how the United States works, I mean, COVID is a great case study for that. Mm-hmm. So I just kind of wanted to mention all of these different areas that COVID has touched that are opportunities for us to learn, I think, about our government. Great little summary there. And I talked to Germany, I talked to Italy, I talked to Spain, I talked to India like every week in my job. And it was fascinating to see where they were at in the course of the year compared to where we were. Because where we went, we didn't move. And they were moving all over the place. They were out, they were in. They were 11 p.m. curfew, 6 p.m. curfew. Like they were like, I think all that stuff is interesting. And it's interesting in the course, in the case of the United States, but also like comparatively then, like you expand it to the globe, right? All of those things that you just mentioned, what other governments did and to see like, okay, what worked? If we did A and the UK did B, what can we do? Like, let's, let's learn from everybody and, and try to make it better for, you know, hopefully in 21, 21 or something that hundred years after this one, you know, yeah. the next one comes around <laughs> that we're like, no, we got this. We learned from COVID we're, we're set. Yeah. That was a lot. <laughs> we're, we're way over so many things expected. to talk about with COVID. <laughs> yeah. COVID will shape the next hundred years of the country's future. And I think in mm-hmm. a way the cold war did, you know, maybe not so much, but maybe just as much, you know, it's, it's hard to tell, but I think that there are some big things that happen where, the world will not be the same after this and for anything, for economics, for government, for technology, like it's all changed from where we were one year ago. It's kind of baffling, honestly. It is. And it will be interesting to see what happens in the future. It was a rough year, but you know what? (laughs) New beginnings. (laughs) New beginnings. Yeah. Well, well, thanks for having this discussion. We're going to now finally wrap up. We just can't stop talking about COVID. And uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll uh, see you next time. Yeah. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll be back next week and uh, stay safe out there. Go grab a beer at a restaurant or something if you can. For sure. Thank you for listening to the Reframers pod. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, please rate and review us five stars and subscribe so you can always catch our latest episode. You can also find us on YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter at Reframers pod. And you can email us at reframerspod at gmail.com.